Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried begging you for money. Give me money to make more, uh, Cut, take two. Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried saying to you, give me money. I want money. Just give me money to make more Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. It costs money, believe it or not. You're over there saying, but it's so cheap and amateurish. I know that, but it still takes money. So it's patreon.com slash Gilbert Gottfried. Patreon.com slash Gilbert Gottfried. And there are rewards in it. I can't even say reward. Rolling. And there are cut. And you know, like signed posters, and uh, and I'll some some of you, if it's enough money, I'll roast you. And uh, there's so much, so much. But it's Patreon.com/slash Gilbert Gottfried. Give me money. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. We're once again recording at Nutmeg with our engineer, Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is an actor, director, writer, photographer, stuntman, and one of the most innovative and admired makeup and special effects artists in the history of cinema. You've seen him in popular movies and TV shows like Night Riders, Dawn of the Dead, Creepshow, From Dust Till Dawn, Machete, Grindhouse, Machete Kills, Planet of Terror, Django Unchained, The Perks... <laughs> I knew I'd fuck that up. <laughs> the perks of being a wallflower. Aquatine Hunger Force. And The Simpsons, among others. As a director, he's helmed episodes of Tales of the Dark Side, as well as an installment of George Romero's Dead Time Stories. And the 1990 remake of Night of the Living Dead. His award-winning makeup and special effects work have made him a living legend among fans of horror and suspense films with credits that include Dead of Night, Martin, Friday the 13th, Maniac, Creepshow, The Burning, Monkey Shines, Day of the Dead, Alone in the Dark, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, and many more. In his long and successful career, he's worked with George Romero, Ed Harris, Quentin Tarantino, Stephen King, Robert Rodriguez, and George Clooney, just to name a few. He's also the author of the book Grand Delusions, a learn-by-example guide 
to the art and technique of special makeup effects. And if that's not enough, he's also the teacher and mentor who oversees Tom Savini's special makeup effects program at the Douglas Education Center. Please welcome to the show a master of horror who says his favorite movies are actually love stories. What a fucking pussy. (laughs) (laughs) The king of splatter, the godfather of gore, Tom Savini. (laughs) There's nothing left to say. (laughs) You make me sound so important. I like to... Whoever you're talking about, I think I like them. <laughs> the, the long, drawn-out intros have become part of the uh, part of the mystique of the show, Tom. The fans demand them. I gotcha. Well, I'm, I'm honored to be uh, one of them. It, it would be like being insulted by Don Rickles. <laughs> <laughs> honored to have that. Quite a quite a compliment. So I just a few months back, I did a show in Pittsburgh, and I was there for like a few days. Bored out of my fucking mind. <laughs> and and then Bobby Slayton tells me that that you live in Pittsburgh and you've got this house full of monsters and special effects. There's one right here. Oh, look at that. We're with, oh, wow. wow. We've got Tom this on is, camera. This is Fluffy from Creepshow. Sure. It's the bust of him that... Uh, you know, I kind of sculpted him and all the Universal monsters. They're down in the basement. Hopefully, I can take you down there, and this thing won't, uh, and thing won't die. You know. <laughs> well, he was inconsolable, Tom, when he didn't get to see the uh, the well, workshop. But, well, hopefully, you'll come back. Yeah, no, I bombed the last time. <laughs> he's got cool shit in there. He's got a, a Christopher Lee's mummy, and he's got uh, the creature from the Black Lagoon, and I think you both have Vincent Price life masks. Oh, yeah. Oh. Well, here's a, can I, is there a way to, you can't turn this around. Can see, you? Well, see can, now, now, yeah. no, no one is, can, we can see it, but our audience can't. Yeah, yeah. that's okay, great. There's, there's the Vincent Price life. Mask oh, on the that's, wall. that's very nice. Well, that's him young and this is him old. We can see you see it? it okay? I can't tell if you can see it. Oh, that, I can't really make out the, I think, yeah. Okay. Oh, I see. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Oh, that's that's the one I have. Yeah, and then there's um, James Cagney up there. Oh, look at that. That's cool. James Cagney and um, uh, David Bowie from The Hunger. Wow, look at that. Our, wow. list, our listeners are going, it's a goddamn audio podcast. I can't yes. see any of this. Take out. Basil Rathbone, Boris Karloff, Clark Gable. Look at that. Gil, that puts yours to shame. Oh, oh, mine, I just have four. And Bella Lugosi. Well, in the in the kitchen over here, this I just got these. This is Jack Palance. Oh, the Jekyll and Hyde? Yeah, Jack Palance there. Wow, yeah. look at this. And Humphrey Bogart. Oh, my God. Dude, it's hum- like you're there. Wow. Yeah, but then Charles Bronson is in the back. I'm a big fan of Charles Bronson. Oh, I am too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Charles Bronson, Lee Marvin. When men were men, Steve McQueen, Lee Marvin. You know. <laughs> well, after we're finished recording and we don't have any other audio issues, you can take us up there. Okay. All right. And Gilbert will get a thrill. And and you, who are known as like one of the kings of gore, and and but you have experience in real life gore. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, now that's that's part of the uh, misunderstanding about me being the the Wizard of Gore, Doctor Splatter, everything they call me. They think that it all began when I went to Vietnam, but uh, you know my 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 interest and in, I started doing this when I was eleven after I saw Man of a Thousand Faces. You know the James Cagney. Oh yes, sure, sure. Yeah, that's why Cagney's up there, and uh, the Man of a Thousand. Uh, but they had posters over there. But anyway, the Plaza Theater in Pittsburgh. You know the theater. Wow. They, you know, that's been, that was here up until five years ago. It was, it opened in 1917. Right. And I, saw, this, I saw a piece about you in a, in a dock. You said you shine shoes. I shine right. shoes right. so I can buy masks. Yeah. Right. But Vietnam was a lesson in anatomy for me, which is why I have the reputation for realism. All my stuff is anatomically correct because I saw, I'm the only uh, makeup artist who has seen, you know, the real thing. Um, and it was kind of a, a safety behind the camera. I mean, I saw horrible stuff. Not our guys, but Viet Cong, you know. Uh, well, our, I saw our guys, but I didn't photograph our guys. Um, so I saw horrible stuff. So for me, the safety was behind the camera looking at it and thinking, how would I create that? And I've been creating it, you know, ever since in my uh in my my career as the special makeup effects artist. Yeah, I've heard you say you hate the way people die in films and in, in war films because it's so very good. Yeah, because realistic. Because no, it's not realistic because they all want to look pretty for the camera. Here's a guy coughing, and the guy his friend is giving him his last cigarette. You know, and when he dies, he's like, Yeah, he uh, the he mouth to look pleasant, yeah. mouth and eyes closed. Right, you know. right. Everybody, every cadaver I've ever seen. You know, you don't, you don't, you don't, you lose all your muscles, all your muscle control. And these are muscles that hold your jaw closed. All the jaws are slack, you know, on the cadaver, all the, unless it's a position that just gravity is pulling the mouth closed, you know. But that's what I hate when uh, the, the best portrayal of dead bodies is Danny Trejo, uh, Peter Coyote and Random Hearts, because they didn't care about looking pretty. You know, yeah, they were no. doing stuff like that. <laughs> Tom, they were, they I'll tell our being, listeners yeah. Tom is doing that. They were being cadavers. Uh, Acting which, it out for us. To me, an actor is not doing a great job portraying his own death if he's not got his jaw slack, you know. Only because I'm, you know, your point of view is based on your experiences. And my experiences were seeing many, 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 many corpses and cadavers. And the jaw is usually slack. And that's that's the long answer to your short question. <laughs> so the mouths are always open when yeah, you see yeah. dead bodies. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask I'm you too. Go ahead. Zombies should walk around with their mouths open because if they're walking, they have control of some muscles, you know. I just want to ask you about your childhood too, Tom, as long as we're talking about the Plaza Theater. And I, I read that you would go in at nine o'clock in the morning and stay there all day and in those well, days and – Aren't you, aren't you aren't you old enough to have sure, that experience? Sure. Oh, sure. You, know, you go in at nine o'clock in the morning and see seventeen cartoons, right? And then a, 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 a serial or two, Flash Gordon, or uh, you know, the Ape and the Gorilla, or the Ape and the Robot, and you know, uh, uh, Tarzan, and then two feature films. Right. You came out at five or six o'clock at night, and you couldn't see because you've been in the dark theater all day. You know, coming out, but that that was the best. That was the best time. And you're surrounded by screaming kids, laughing kids, you know. When do you experience that today? I, I actually hate going 
to movie theaters today because of the anxiety of how many people am I going to have to tell to shut up? Yeah, and everybody's messing with their phone. Turn that phone off in my face. Yeah. The, the respect is gone. You know, these were palaces. These were temples of joy, temples of pleasure when I was a kid. You know. Mm-hmm. Do you well, have a theater, Gil, a local theater where you would just go and I, sit there all day? The, the theater I remember growing up was the Cameo Theater on Easton Parkway, which turned into like a church or something. You'd go early in the morning and just sit there all day and they wouldn't throw you out? Yeah, I remember uh, – what. But I, I remember sneaking in when they were playing Midnight Cowboy. Oh, they wow. Were it was right, rated X. And I wanted to talk to you, Tom, about um, Man of a Thousand Faces. Well, can I, yeah. can I tell you first about Midnight Cowboy? Oh, sure. Yeah, sure. Yes. When I came back from Vietnam, I was an emotionless zombie. Uh, a lot of guys were when they came back. Marriages failed. Um you know, they call it PTS, the PTS syndrome now. Okay. I, I probably had that. But because you have to turn off your emotions to survive mentally in this sort of situation, I was kind of lucky because, as I've said, I would look at it and think, how would I create that? But still, when I came back, the emotions are turned off from my sanity. What brought my emotions back to me, it took two years. Okay. What brought my emotions back? is when Dustin Hoffman died in Midnight Cowboy. I went berserk. I was in the theater and cried hysterically. My wife and a, and a friend were there. I, the whole theater was empty, and I'm still in there sobbing, crying. I think all the pent-up emotion of uh, holding back in Vietnam and then wow. two years after that. When he died, it was too much. So a movie like uh, Midnight Cowboy brought me back. From that day on, sunsets were beautiful. You know, uh, my marriage failed. I was too late for that. I was. I saw the movie with my ex-wife at the time, but that movie was very important to me be- because that's when my emotions came back. That's when I became me again. Don't forget, I'm a little Italian kid loafing on the corner here, shining shoes to buy, <laughs> you know, mask and put makeup on my friends, and suddenly it's like it's like Deer Hunter. You're plunged in this situation. Where you, you know, it's just a horrible situation. But I'm happy to talk about Man of a Thousand Faces. So, but, but Dustin Hoffman dying on screen. Rats on Rizzo. In, yeah, Midnight Cowboy. Did me in. Did that, me in. that did more than years of therapy or anything like yes. that. I mean, even when I finally got my shit together and was able to stand up and leave the theater, back then, theater marquees, there were poles holding, you know, the marquee yes. outside your I, 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 it happened again. I grabbed a pole and again, just weeped hysterically. All of it came back. And, and I, I felt, I felt like the sun came up within me. You know, I mean, if I could give it a metaphor, you know. So the power of movies. A movie brought it back. I always, I tell people that story a lot. Wow. Yeah. It was what a, a coincidence that that was a movie you would bring up. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It was a movie that began my career and a movie that brought me back to life to continue my career when I was, you know, back in the States. So let's get back to Man of a Thousand Faces, James Cagney and yeah. Mr. Magoo as his agent. <laughs> right. Mr. Bacchus. I, it, it was like. I remember I saw that movie a few thousand times because they used to show it a lot. Yeah. And the funny thing is, very big fan of the movie, but it's also one of those movies 
that whenever Hollywood has a based on a true story, they're quite liberal with the truth. Very liberal in his case, yeah. He didn't. He wasn't on his deathbed and wrote Junior at the end of no. his name. You know. Yeah. Uh, in fact, Creighton Tall Cheney went through hell to have a movie career, and he didn't have one until he changed his name to a long. Yeah, Cheney. there yeah. were there were a bunch of movies, primitive movies, where you see Creighton Cheney. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But um, be, before that movie, to me, Frankenstein, The Wolfman, Dracula. Creature from the they were real. They were real. I wish I could see a movie again through the eyes of an eight-year-old child who believes everything is real. The Man of a Thousand Faces showed me that somebody creates the movies. Somebody creates the monsters. And it was like another awakening. It was like, oh, Jesus, yes, of course. So I decided then I'm going to be one of the guys that, you know, creates the monsters. But for a long time, I thought James Cagney was Lon Chaney until Famous Monsters magazine. And I could see the real Chaney, you know. And uh, I have a son named Lon. He's named after Lon Chaney. He has a daughter named Chaney, Chaney Savini. Can you imagine when she grows up, you know, her her father is Lon. I'm Tom Savini, the the makeup guy. You know, it's going to be quite a conversation. And his wife's name is Boris. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, he had twins, and one is... Cheney, and one is uh, the girl is Cheney, and the the boy is Price. Oh wow! We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast, but first a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I now, didn't, I didn't, and who who I forget now who did the makeup for Man of a Thousand Faces? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, I think it was one of the Westmore. Bud, Bud, yeah, yeah, Bud Bud, uh, Bud, Bud Westmore. That's it was either real. the Westmores or William Tuttle. I, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. could have. Yeah, I I forget, but I remember, I remember being very disappointed in the makeups there. And uh, oh yeah, 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 and also like Cagney had that big round face, as opposed to Cheney's like thin long face. Right, right, right. Yeah, the makeup, especially the Phantom. Oh, horrible. Yeah, really horrible. It was just a rubber mask almost. It, you know? it looked like the nose was like about a foot long. Well, it was a pig nose. Yeah. It was up like that, you know. Cheney went through, you know, it was he suffered. There's a there's a there's a fabric called silk organza. Back then they called it uh well the one of the names for it was fish skin. And that's where the the incorrect mythology of Cheney using fish hooks, you know, it was fish skin. Yeah. He glued to the tip of his nose and then pulled it up and glued it to the bridge. So his nose would stay up like this. Okay. And he had a dome on the top of his head to make his head longer. He was basically doing a stage makeup of a skull, you know, the teeth, the sunken eyes. Mm -hmm. That was very, it's it's an excellent stage makeup. In fact, I did eight years of repertory stage. I was in a play every night. I would do everybody's, everybody's makeup and then play a part. You know, I was King Arthur and Camelot. I was in Fiddler on the Roof. So I would do everybody's makeup. And um, uh, But I would do it. I mean, when you're on stage, the distance you are from the audience and the lights, you can get away with a lot. Okay. But I made myself and them up for the mirror. And that was great training for uh, doing makeup on people for movies when their faces are 40 feet high and 60 feet wide. It has to be, you know, quite realistic. 
Yeah. You know, I found doing some research about Lon Chaney. We had Ron Chaney on the show. Uh, uh, Lon, very nice man. Very well, nice man. And and told us things we didn't know, like that story about Creighton being born and being shoved under the ice. You remember that, Gilbert? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was allegedly. Cause, allegedly. Yeah, because with Lon Chaney Jr., I think he could tell some stories. Uh, he was born dead. And his father ran out to, like, this frozen river and dunked him in it. Yeah, wow. punched a yeah. hole in the ice yeah. and put him in it. Yeah. yeah. And According that, to Ron Chaney, yeah. And that wow. brought him to life. That's an, I, I don't think I've heard that story. Have you ever met Lon Chaney Jr.? No, no. Um, but I have, a, I have a Ron Chaney story. Okay. Real brief. We're, you know, I do horror conventions all the time, and so did he for a while. And a bunch of us were in the bar, and Ron Chaney walked by, you know, in the hallway. And one of my friends yelled, hey, Ron, can I buy you a drink? And like that, he said, I never drink wine. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Nice man. So I'm trying to get the chronology of this, Tom. You 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 started doing the stuff at 11, and you, you worked with a traveling group, a traveling theater group, a magic uh, group. Yeah, there was an ad in the paper live on stage, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, Dracula. So I went and, um, you know, Frankenstein was just a guy in a mask. Wolfman was a guy in the mask. Dracula was a kid that they picked out of the audience. <laughs> he, just, he, just, he just stood there. He just stood there. They put a cape on him. He just stood there. Well, that really pissed me off, you know. How old are you around this time now? 12, 13, right. 14 maybe. Yeah. So uh, f- probably 14. So I made. I went. I went back to the theater. And made sure they picked me. You know, I sat on the aisle and they they picked me. I had my own cape. I had fangs. Uh-huh. I was doing makeup. I was ready, okay? So, and this is when I learned about misdirection. Because I'm backstage with my cape. And I can see the crowd is watching the Frankenstein and the, the Wolfman on the stage. So I creeped out and got real low in front of them. And it was when it was Dracula's turn to appear, I jumped up and spread the cape. And they screamed and physically moved backwards out of fear. And the people running the show saw that. So they no longer picked the kid from the audience. I they I became part of the troupe and went with them from movie theater to movie theater. I was their Dracula. And they paid me in, you know, chocolate milkshakes and silver dollars. <laughs> so you're you're hooked on acting at this point, performing as well as you're hooked on the makeup. In grade school, uh, yeah. the nuns would we would do bake sales, and I would do skits dressed as a woman, and and they were saying, but the the principal, the nun, was saying, you know, you sh- I'm, I'm a kid, I'm eight, yeah. nine, you should pursue this, you know, in life. <laughs> and so, take us through the chronology. I mean, you when when did Dick Smith come into your life? You you, you went to you went into the army. I went to you the came army. Came out when did you get when you went to Carnegie Mellon. I taught, uh, I got a fellowship to Carnegie Mellon mm-hmm. to teach makeup, mm-hmm. and I was uh, part of the acting directing program, which means the students in the makeup course were my classmates. You know, that was kind of tough. I gave blanket grades. If they did a project, they got an A, you know, because you know, these are my classmates. Sure. So um, George Romero was gearing up to do Martin, the, you know, so I went down to audition for The Vampire. It was already cast. But he had remembered me because he came to my high school when I was a sophomore uh, and looking for a guy. There were 1,500. It's an all-boy high school. There were 1,500 of us. He picked me. Uh, we had auditions. He picked me. The movie never got made. So when I went down for Martin, he recognized me. 
And I had my portfolio, you know, in the with me, and I showed it to him, and that's how I got to do uh, the makeup effects on it. And I played a part and did the stunts. And that's what I tell my students. You know, I have a school here, and we just celebrated our 16-year anniversary, uh, a school for special makeup effects. They come from all over the world. Um, every time you see Face Off on television, at least five of them are students from my school. Last year, one of my students won Face Off. Uh, oh, Hewitt. that's cool. Hewitt. But um, chronologically, uh, I took a leave of absence to do Dawn of the Dead for George Romero. I was doing a play. I was doing a play in Carolina a line in winter and got a telegram from George that said, start thinking of ways to kill people. We got another gig <laughs> and it was Dawn of the Dead. Okay. So um, I did Dawn of the Dead, but you, but you asked me something in relation to the chronology. Well, I, I was trying to figure out if Dick, oh, well, I know Dick Smith was a mentor and I know George came into your so life too, Ron. We did, we did Dawn of the Dead. The next movie that was offered to me was Friday the 13th, the original Friday. I created Jason mm-hmm. for Friday the 13th. In fact, I'm 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 also working on the Friday the Thirteenth video game that's coming out. I devised all the kills and created a, a new Jason, and it's now, pretty brutal. Now, one thing I heard that you did that sounds idiotic: you <laughs> turned down one of the Friday the Thirteenths because it didn't one. make sense. <laughs> it didn't make sense. <laughs> I love that. But, but 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 just to answer your question and continue. Yes. Yeah. One of the dead. I ordered blood from the 3M company. Remember 3M? They made oh sure, yeah copy machines. Scotch chemicals Scotch tape, didn't they? The blood was it was a stage blood that they made. It was horrible, and that's the blood in Dawn of the Dead. It looks like looks like melted crayons. It's horrible. It's like paint. Um, so before Friday the thirteenth, I called Dick Smith on the phone because we're going to kind of pass his house on the way to the uh, this, the location. And uh, he gave us his blood formula. And, um, you know, you couldn't learn this stuff when I was trying to learn it because nobody, excuse me, shared their secrets. But Dick shared everything. He would spend hours on the phone telling you how to do something and then Xerox it, Xerox back then, and then mail it to you. You know, it was, it was priceless, okay? So, um, and just quickly tell, remind our listeners, Dick Smith was did the, the greatest. He, he was the greatest living makeup artist on the planet. He invented everything we do. We have simply taken it and enhanced it and mm-hmm. added to it and made it better. But uh, he's the he's really the, the the godfather of special makeup effects. You know, and uh, he did the Godfather, and Age the, Marlon Brando. Yeah, yeah, The Exorcist, Midnight Cowboy, so, yeah, so many. Yeah, he's done some fantastic – Amadeus, he won the Academy Award for Amadeus. And right, what, right. what someone said, and I didn't even realize this, what shows him as a great makeup artist is everyone's looking at Linda Blair's monster makeup, but you don't realize The Exorcist, uh, that, uh, Max von Sydow, uh, was was like in his 40s at the time. He had trouble getting work after that because everybody thought he was 70-some years old. Wow, that's great. Because the makeup was so great. Today, he looks like the makeup. <laughs> <laughs> it was very accurate. So, yes, Jason, Friday the 13th, they sent me the script. Now, Friday the 13th kind of pissed me off because um, – I all I wanted was a big screen TV out of this. You know, I think I got paid fifteen grand to do all the effects in Friday the thirteenth, pay my assistant, buy materials. And then the movie made seventy-two million dollars, okay? 
And the reviews all said the star of this film is Tom Savini's makeup effects. Okay. So they sent me the script for part two. And here's Jason running around. Well, Jason was a kid that drowned in the first movie. The mother was the killer. I said, what do you got? You got Jason running around. Oh, no, no, no. We're going to change that. Well, they didn't. You know, Jason is running around and he's still running around. Okay. I stopped watching him after part five. The In part five, the fucking ashtray was Jason. His spirit kept it. <laughs> so, but they, they just got really stupid. So I turned down part two. They did not offer me part three. And the series was waning. And they did offer me part four, which is called the final chapter. Part four is called because they thought that was going to be the last one. And so when I to make up for part one, I asked for a fortune and I got it. OK, so I did that movie, created Jason as a 35 year old. I created him as a kid in the first one. And that made so much money. You, I mean, look, there, there's going to be a Friday the 13th, part 13, I'm sure. And uh, the game is coming out. And it's quite, it's a franchise, a, you know, a multi-million dollar franchise. And you have a bust of Jack Pierce, the great universal monster yeah. maker. Yeah, yeah, I do have Jack Pierce, yeah. That man was incredible. Um, you know, the Frankenstein makeup took about nine and a half hours. Karloff would sleep in the makeup sometimes with his head in a position, you know, pillows and stuff. So he wouldn't have to go through it the next day, you know, because it was built up of cotton and collodion. Collodion is 24 percent ether. You know, you can imagine smelling that all day, you know. Um, and in fact, he, they would walk him around with a bag over his head on the universal lot because it was so he was so scary. But that is a masterpiece of makeup. Uh, the the Frankenstein makeup, and he did the mummy. He did uh, um, the Wolf Man. Wolf Man, of sure, course. sure. Um, he was he, yeah. Jack Pierce after Lon Chaney, he's second on my list of you know my idols. Then of course there's you know Dick Smith, Rick Baker, Rob Bottin, Greg Nicotero, uh, Steve Johnson. You know, I've heard you say you admire. Speaking since you brought up Rob Bottin, you you admire very much his work on the thing. Well, he, that's the. Ma- that's the masterpiece of splatter. I'm called the king of splatter, but that was the masterpiece of splatter. In fact, I, you know, um, when I did Creep Show, I had to create Fluffy. Fluffy was the first animatronic creature I had to make. I didn't know how to do it. I called Rob Bottin, and hours later on the phone, he has explained to me step by step how. And then when I went to L.A., uh, I, I was in a movie called Night Riders, which you've mentioned. Sure. Rob Bottin came, took me to his house. And tore the skins off all the howling creatures to show me how the mechanisms worked in there. You know, he says, "Well, I never keep the skins anyway," but but he he's responsible for teaching me, uh, you know, how to do a, an animatronic creature. The effects in the thing are very impressive. I, Just today, I even now, Blu-ray of uh, the new Blu-ray of it. Another makeup uh, that really impressed me was like. In American Werewolf, Rick Baker's makeup yeah. was in a brightly lit room. Yes. That happened right in front of you. Yeah. That happened. All my stuff and all stuff like Rick Baker's stuff and Rob Bottin, that stuff was happening right in front of you. There was no CGI. You did not have to uh, change your mindset into thinking, well, this is real because it was real and it was happening. See, that's the problem today. People always ask me about CGI and I love it when it's done well. 
I think the best effects today are a combination of the CGI and practical effects. I wish I had CGI when I was trying to solve a problem or hide an edge back then, you know. So these are the best effects, the, the combination. And Walking Dead does it constantly. You know, the, the bicycle girl with half a body, it's just a girl in green tights and they erase the legs, you know, later, you know. Um, so that's, that's that would be hard to do. Also, if you've seen The Walking Dead, like the, I think the first episode uh, last season was the trough episode where people were being bashed in the head and their throats were cut. Well, they put the tubing on the people to shoot the blood out, but they don't, they didn't even have to bother putting appliances over it because the visual effects guys would go in and erase the tubing. So what you saw was just blood coming out of there. And then that made for quicker cleanup time, more setups to, to be done, more takes to shoot. Because, you know, if I, when I tore Joe Pilato's body in half in Day of the Dead, the, the reset was five hours, you know? <laughs> right. You know, on that set, the reset was, you know, two minutes. So Now, I, I always think, like, when I was a kid, I knew how they did King Kong and the Wolfman. I knew it was just basically turning the camera off and turning it back on. Uh-huh. But I remember as a, as a kid, and to this day, I feel like I can touch those things. And and with computer generated images, I I feel like there's nothing to touch. Well, that's that's what happened to me. I saw Jurassic Park, and I I knew how it was made, so I I didn't see any dinosaurs. I just pictured guys at a computer, and that really pissed me off. So the next time I went to see it, I smoked a joint, which helped <laughs> focus. And um, I said to my, my I changed my mindset to. No matter what I see, foreground, background, it's it really exists. And the movie blew me away. It was spectacular. But I had to change my mindset to do that. I think that's the collective dislike of CGI today. People have to change their mindset. They have to make that effort. And they don't feel like making that effort because old timers like us are used to seeing it happen right in front of you. you yeah. know? So, But the new generations will be accepting that and it will just be part of their, their toolbox as filmmakers. You know, props to to Rob Bettine and, and and Rick Baker because we're talking about two movies that were made in the 80s and those both of those effects hold up very well yeah, now. And I would wonder if kids who were raised on CGI would see those movies – and actually have an issue with them yeah, or just buy into it. If they think it was primitive now. I don't think so. They, they hold up or, very well. Or this, or one of the sad things that happens is, and Steven Spielberg says this of his son, Max, who's 13, if it's impossible, it's CGI. Yeah. You know, uh, that's very sad because, again, Greg Nicotero did this wonderful makeup on In Land of the Dead of this baseball player zombie who part of her face was gone and you could see her teeth, you know, and that was a makeup, but people thought it was CGI because it was so good, you know? So if it's impossible, they think it's CGI. As long as we're talking about uh, Walking Dead, Greg Nicotero was your protege. I've known him since he was 14. Uh, He assisted me on so many movies. I just saw him last weekend at his uncle's funeral, and I will see him again this weekend in L.A. at the funeral of one of the greatest makeup artists uh, who has ever uh, worked with us, a guy named John Vulich. He was part of my crew on many movies. He formed the uh, 
the special makeup effects company called Optic Nerve in L.A. And he he's 55. He died Tuesday in his sleep. Oh, sorry to hear that. Long Young man. Memorial, yeah. You told uh, an interesting story about that during The Godfather, Coppola went up to Dick Smith yes. and said the blood doesn't look real. Right. Dick cut his finger open. Not on the spot, but, you know, at some other time. And he walked with his finger bleeding. He walked up to Coppola and said, what about this? Ah, no, that's fake. You know, but it was <laughs> on blood, you know, so. I love that story. I never <laughs> heard that. It's great. <laughs> He that he Dick was a, Dick was a tough guy. I mean, he almost got in a fist fight with Dennis Quaid over some you, uh, old makeup on some uh, baseball movie that Dennis Quaid was involved in. He didn't take any shit, you know, Dick Smith. Wow! Since you brought up Creepshow, let's talk about Creepshow. Okay. Which you said was the hardest, uh, the biggest challenge, the biggest makeup effects challenge. That well, it's you ever five faced. movies. It's right. five movies, and it was just me and a seventeen-year-old kid that did all that stuff. The fluffy creature, Nate's corpse coming out of the grave, uh, the cockroaches coming out of V.G. Marshall. Yeah, I love that. That got applause and screams on the set when that happened. Because, listen, I hate bugs. And <laughs> I was never in the same room with those 28,000 cockroaches that entomologists collected in Trinidad living in bat shit, Okay. The stories they told of collecting those roaches is scarier than any movie you've ever seen. <laughs> I miss those anthology movies, you know, the the, the five movies in one. Oh, just and, like Dr. Terrace, House of Horrors. Yeah, what's the one with Burgess Meredith? Day of Night, Dead of Night, the British movie. Dead oh, that's a great one with oh, Michael, yes. Michael Redgrave. Yes. Yeah, but people tune out of those anymore. Creepshow was great. Those two were fantastic. Uh, but a lot of them, you know, I mean, because, you know, uh, Hammer tried to keep making those and they just got uh, silly. Dr. Terror. I mean, look who's in that. Donald Sutherland was in one yeah. of those things. As- Christopher Lee. Yeah, everybody. Pushing. What's the one with Burgess Meredith where where he's the um, where he's the carnival, uh, the leader? It's Torture Garden. You know this oh. one? Oh. It's another one. It's another one of those anthology another pictures. Anthology film. Horror anthologies. Yeah, it'd be I nice to bring them back. I got to tell you how I met Christopher Lee. I'm at a convention in New York. Uh, rumor had is that, that they were going to bring him in through the kitchen. So a few of us scurried to the kitchen, and it was in the dead of winter. So the, the, the kitchen door opens. Snow whiffs in like fog. Christopher Lee steps through the door with his overcoat over his shoulders, and he's, he's fucking Dracula walked in, you know. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, and he's very—he's three feet taller than me. I'm five, seven, or eight, you know. So uh, that, but that was my encounter with, you know, Christopher Lee. Years later, um, I was talking to him about asking him whether he continued fencing because you know he was Rochefort in the Three Musketeers, right? Oliver Reed, I mean, right? And he, Richard he, Lester, he said to me, I had trouble believing it at the time, but he said, I. Christopher Lee speaking, I have the most screen sword fights of any actor. And I, and I, I, I guess he could see I, in my face that I was doubting him. And he started rattling them off. The Master of Bell and Trey with Errol Flynn, uh, Three Musketeers. And he said, and he showed me his hand. And this little finger of his is bent at a right angle. It's not straight up like I'm showing you right now. It's bent at the second knuckle. He said, that's a little present from... Errol Flynn, who by noon 
had been doing this. Okay. Drinking. Yeah. <laughs> Bending the elbow. I was supposed to go for the shoulder, went for my thigh and just crushed, broke his little finger with the sword, the big sword they were using. And that was in the Master of Bellantrae. But um, yeah, he's he's quite the swordsman. And so was Basil Rathbone and Tyrone Power. Tyrone Power's mother was an Olympic fencer. You know, one of the greatest screen fights ever was in the Mark of Zorro with Tyrone Power and Basil Rathbone, and they did every second of it. And and which is which pisses me off about movies today. When they do fights in movies, it's in close up, so they can see the actor's face doing a couple of moves, and then it's stunt guys when they. Oops. That's Greg Nicotero. Ah. I love the Looney Tunes. <laughs> you're yeah, selling your phone. cell phone. That was Greg. I'll have to call him back. But uh, so, yes, that was the greatest screen fight because they're actually doing it. Um, and so you can shoot the whole body head to toe and see Tyrone Power and Basil Rathbone doing all those fantastic fencing moves. My favorite thing watching fencing is number one. If you are really having a fight with two swords, one person would be seriously injured in a second. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're good, you know, if you're good. Then well, you, you know how to fence, don't you, Tom? Yeah, I'm a tournament fencer. Yeah. I mean, tournament fencing is the same thing. It's two guys facing each other. And, I mean, they're going to get a point if they touch you or you're going to get a point if you touch them. The point is just to parry and block any attempt that they make. So I imagine back then when swords were sharp and you were defending your life, you had to be good to not get hurt, you know? I'm going to throw you guys and, a curveball oh, on Wait, Fed. wait. I got it. I got it. This is the other thing that drives me crazy. What's that? Have any two people in real life who were fencing to the death ever had one guy drop his sword and the other one, like, toss it up in the air and let him catch it? To continue fencing. Well, I've done that just as a point of honor. You know, there was <laughs> yeah. honor back then, you know. But in real life, how would anyone do that? If you're, if you're defending your life and someone's trying to kill you, you may take advantage of that situation. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, I mean, the, the, the corpse a corpse move, which is when they come in close and hold the swords against each other's face to spit out some dialogue, that is totally unrealistic to me. I don't think that you know, whatever happened. But there's so many things in movies that should pitch, piss you off. Like when it starts raining, they stand there and keep talking in the rain. We don't do this. You <laughs> run away from the rain. Here's another example, okay? Uh, how many movies have you seen where like a rock comes through the window and there's a note attached to it? What do they do? They run to the rock to read the note. No, somebody just threw <laughs> Of course. Rock through my window, you know? I, I like when the bad guy has a gun on you, and uh, and the good guy goes, oh, come on, you don't want to shoot me. You want to do this mano a mano. Come on. The guy puts the gun down? Fit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, you know what, what, what? The other thing that pisses me off, and they did it in, in Skyfall, in one of the greatest Bond movies, you know, at the beginning of the movie, he's on a train in a gunfight, you know, and he runs out of bullets and throws his gun away. Yes, yes. Your gun away. This is your gun. <laughs> Reload it some other time. But it's your gun. You put it away. You know, how many times they do that? And and I read something today that made me laugh. It's like, okay, if Superman is 
is if bullets bounce off Superman, why does he duck when they throw the gun at him at the end? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> you know, he ducks. This is the TV series, of course. Also, and since you know about injuries and stuff, in movies, the good guy who looks like he got shot and is dying and he'll fall to the ground. And, and then you find out the bullet hit his shoulder, which according to movie science means you could take a bullet in your shoulder and it's nothing. Listen, doesn't shatter your collarbone. No, it doesn't do a thing. If you took a bullet in your shoulder, lots of pain for one thing. <laughs> can't lift your arm anymore you know, after that. They take many, but look, look at the licenses, the license they would take in a John Wayne movie. He punches a guy in the face and the guy, and they, they, they keep fighting and throwing punches. That one punch from John Wayne would cause severe head injury to you, right? Probably break your jaw, crush your eye socket. You know I mean? But they keep going, but you're, you're as an audience, you're being trained to accept this, of course, ridiculous and, lunacy. And uh, another thing I love, and it's still being done, is you could take the butt of a gun or a rock or a club, whack someone over the head, they conveniently go to sleep, and then they're fine in the next scene. No, this again, we're talking severe head injury. <laughs> <laughs> so that they, and that was the cliche that used over and over again. Knock them out, you know, yeah. just knock them out, you know, with your gun. Tom, yeah. you're a movie buff, so here's a curveball in a fencing scene in a comedy, a good fencing scene in a comedy. Princess Bride. Yes, that yeah. one, but also one starring one of your favorite actors, Tony Curtis. You'll know where I'm going with this. Oh. The Great Race. Yeah, and Ross Martin. Yes. A well-directed, was... a, a actual duel yeah, but in that, a comedy. That scene is lifted from The Prisoner of Zenda. Yes, it is. You know, uh... Uh, what, what's he say? What's Ross Martin say at the window? Um, Those that live the fight and run away, run away yeah. fight another day. And he, and he dives out and he hits the boat. That's right. right. Yeah. <laughs> that was that line is from the prisoner of Zenda with Ronald Coleman. And um, I forget who the villain was now that he fenced in that. Yeah. But these, Henry these Daniel. Are, these, that, that's another one of the. He, he, no, not Henry. No, Daniel. it's not him. No, Robert. Um, he was Errol Flynn's nemesis in Don Juan. Robert Douglas. Robert Douglas is the guy. That sounds right. Yeah. But in a comedy, you don't expect to see a, a, a quite a convincing sword fight. Um, you know what? I sat with Tony Curtis. He came to Pittsburgh to promote his uh, book. He was hilarious, this guy. He was still wearing the white toupee, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I was standing outside of the theater uh, hoping that I, when I got in, I would get close enough to the stage to see him. The writer of the of the book, the ghost writer, walked by, recognized me, and brought me into the VIP dinner with Tony Curtis and his big Swedish bride. And uh, he said to the guy, hey, is there something on my shoulder? And then when the guy looked at his shoulder, he grabbed his balls. And, <laughs> you know, that's a trick that we did in <laughs> I immediately thought, "Wow, that's wonderful!" Okay, so I had a uh, I had a folder full of eight by tens, five or so of him, uh, Yul Brynner, Jerry Lewis. I you know I collected eight by tens of these guys. So he came over, sat on the couch with me, 
and went through. And he said, can I draw on one of these? And he gave one of his pictures buck teeth and glasses. Hey, Tom, can you fix me up? Because somebody told him I'm a makeup artist, you know. He got to Jerry Lewis and he said, ah, what an asshole. (laughs) 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 They did Boeing, Boeing. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, listen, I love Jerry Lewis. I don't I hear these stories all the time. But this is somebody that you grew up with and were in love with. He's the the Jim Carrey of of my day. I'm I'm the same way. It's like I've heard every single asshole story you could hear about Jerry Lewis. But also I grew up watching him and he's like like an idol. Right, but if you saw him on a talk show or his talk show, you kind of have yeah. going on here. <laughs> yeah. What's yeah. happening? You know, so yeah. So well, well, what's the point though? Um, oh, Tony Curtis, yes, Tony Curtis. So I asked him. You know, the one of my great. You know, earlier on, you said that I'm a sucker for love stories. Yeah, um, we so we found that in the research. One of the greatest love stories was Trapeze. Oh, with Burt Lancaster. Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis and Gina Lola Brigida. I can't tell you how many times I've seen that movie. I fell in love with that movie. I even have a music box that plays the theme from it. You know, the daring young man on the flying trapeze and all that stuff. So I asked Tony Curtis, I said, when you go to the circus today, are you astounded by the triple? Everyone throws a triple. All the trapeze artists... That's their goal, to throw a triple. And that movie was about, you know, Burt Lancaster teaching him the triple. So, and he said, yes, yes he loves the, the circus, you know. And to me, that was like closure. Actually sitting there with Tony Curtis, who was the flying Orsini, you know, in trapeze, telling me he loves to go to circuses and see them throw the triple, you know. I think that's one movie that's never come up on this show, Trapeze. Oh, We've yeah. We've mentioned a lot. We've talked about a lot of different kinds of movies. Did you ever see a Cary Grant movie called Once Upon a Time? I don't think I have. Nobody has seen that damn movie. What's it about? One of my favorite movies as a kid. You won't believe the story, and I'll make it as brief as I can. Cary Grant is a con man, meets this girl. She has a son. The son has a box with a hole in it, and inside the box is a caterpillar. The kid would play on the harmonica Yes, sir, that's my baby nose. And the caterpillar would dance. You never saw the caterpillar dance. You heard them reacting to the caterpillar dancing. So Cary Grant tries to make a fortune off this damn thing, you know. It it, it does become super famous. They're painting, it's called Curly. The caterpillar is called Curly. They're painting the caterpillar on um, on uh, airplanes, you know, like they did back then with, you know, uh, pinup models. The caterpillar became a star. One day, the kid is distraught. Curly is not in the box, and they're all so sad. And Cary Grant, of course, I, where, I, where, how am I going to make money now? There's this caterpillar that I've been using, you know. And this butterfly starts flying around in the room. The kid plays. I'm about to cry. <laughs> wow. The kid plays the harmonica. The kid plays the harmonica. Plays, yes, sir, that's my baby. And the butterfly starts to fly like he's dancing to the music. Oh, wow. Uh, why hasn't anybody heard or made a big deal? It's called Once Upon a Time. Do you know this picture? Gr- no. I don't know it either. This sounds great. I thought I knew every obscure I'm, Cary Grant movie. For a kid, that movie, again, I'm choking up, you know, it was so beautiful, that movie. We'll look for it. Once Upon a Time, Cary Grant. <laughs> 
<laughs> you never hear about that movie. You describe yourself as a pushover for for love stories and 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 tear jerkers. Did you did you cry when Elvis died in Love Me Tender? I, I cried when Elvis Presley died in Love Me. Tender. <laughs> I, I, I cried when Yul Brynner died in The King and I. <laughs> I cry, That's a hard I one. I today when ET gets on the ship and leaves. Okay, and he's a puppet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm crying my eyes out. <laughs> so the master of horror is a softy. I, I yeah. Well, you know, in some instances, yeah. I'm in accidents because I'm calm and collective, and I can take control. I can turn off because I did so. In v- I can turn off my emotions like that when I have to. If I'm if something horrible is happening, I can be practical and distance from it. You know, it's just something that I took with me from, you know, the war. I mean, you know, it really pisses me off when I hear, hey, I just went on vacation in Vietnam. What? 58,212 of us died for Vietnam, and now it's a vacation? It's a resort? What? This doesn't make sense to me, you know. Anyway. I'm sure. I'm sure. You have a completely different perspective on the place. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to go back and see where I was stationed. And it's probably a resort, you know? Now, you're a movie buff, obviously. Which were, do you, do you want to remake? Do I have this right? Um, you want to remake the movie Most Dangerous Game, the Joel McRae movie? Oh, yeah. Uh, that was a horrible movie. Did you ever see it? Uh, probably when I was a kid. The fencing I saw the bad Andy Griffith TV movie. There was Andy one. There was one called Savages with uh, Andy Griffith ch- uh, hunts Timothy Bottoms. Oh well, listen. They remade that plot many, many times. Yeah. But not the original most dangerous game. I mean, I I was bringing it to present day. My villain was a cross between Idi Amin, Gaddafi, and us, uh, and Bin Laden. Okay, guys that you would believe would behead you and put your trophy up on the wall. That's what I didn't believe about that movie back then. We're talking 1930, Joe McRae. Right. You know, the fencing scene was horrible. The villain was a milk toast. But but that's typical. Every time there's a villain, it's some gay little milk toast guy. <laughs> <laughs> the villain should be an equal. It should be, you know, uh, Lee Marvin or Charles Bronson. It should be somebody who can kick your ass. Someone you formidable. Some shit to win. It's always this little milk toast guy, like in that movie, who you didn't think for a second would have a chance against Joe Is it Leslie Banks? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I've always noticed, like, in the old movies and TV, if you had a, a gay actor, he'd either be an eccentric or he'd be evil. A caricature, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And there was something about, like, the evil villain, where the evil villains were always a little effeminate. Yeah. Um, Robert Douglas, the guy we talked about, Errol Flynn's nemesis in all those fencing movies, was very effeminate. But he could handle a sword, you know. <laughs> um, so um, that's that brings up something. I saw something. It was a commercial on how to buy a Halloween costume for your effeminate son. Have you seen this thing? I've not. (laughs) (laughs) A camouflage soldier outfit with a gun, you know. And this was really, this has got to, I'm surprised we're not hearing a lot more. This has got to be so offensive 
to people how to buy a cost, a, 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 you know, a macho costume. Oh, it wasn't real. Our engineer says it was an onion piece. Well, see, I believe faked that- you out. <laughs> oh, oh, one thing. Uh, just getting back to him, I, I, I know, like Lon Chaney Jr. They said actually knew how to do makeup, but by then uh, the makeup union wouldn't allow it. Huh. Well, you know, uh, I, I would believe that story. Uh, simply because of, you know, the unions and don't touch that wire. That's his job. It's he's part of that union, you know. Um, And well, part of the reason they got rid of Jack Pierce was uh, that it took him. He was building that stuff from scratch every time. And what wouldn't use the 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 new foam latex for Frank? He was building it. So it was just taking too long. And, uh, you know, Jack Pierce wound up doing powdering. Mr. Mr. Ed. Ed. Yeah. It's nose, you know. And this was a brilliant, this was a genius guy, you know. So, um, you know, I, I just, I love reading all these old Hollywood stories. One of the, one of the best is The Lion of Hollywood, and that's uh, Louis B. Mayer and MGM. You know, I, I've read the book about Harry Kahn, you know, Universal, RKO. I mean, you know, I just love that stuff. Because to me, I, I was, I think I'm born too late. I wish I was, if I were to come back in time, I would like to come back in 1925 on the Universal lot. You know? <laughs> oh, wow. Can you imagine what you would see, you know, in the next five years? H- hang out with Todd Browning and... Uh, oh, with... with on the set of The Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, Carl but this, this gets us to our next thing that I see in movies. Uh, if, I've been on, on bunches of movie sets, and I walk around the lot, and I've yet to see, like... Roman soldiers and ballerinas and spacemen. Oh. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> and I saw that when I was doing Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th was at the old uh, Zoetrope Studios, the one that Coppola began. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it's called, it was called Hollywood Studios after that and then Raleigh Studios or something. But on the back lot, uh, Duncan Reagan was shooting the Errol Flynn story. I, I I saw Roman fucking soldiers. I saw Duncan Reagan, wow. dressed, you know, in a swashbuckling outfit. I, to me, that backlot back then was Hollywood folklore, a dream, the thing that you see in in that I saw in movies growing up, you know. But I know what you mean. I mean it, that stuff does not happen like on Culver City or you know something. Right. That there's no big spectacles going on where you know you're going to see that stuff. You know, see the Coen Brothers movie, the last one. I think you'll like it. It's about Hill Caesar. Hunt. No, yeah. I, I, I just bought it. Yeah. I saw it in the theater. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. fun look at that period. Oh. And no, Hollywood and, fixers. And genuinely accurate. Right. Eddie can, Mannix. Can you tell a story that, I mean, to me, there are some injuries where I just go, oh, that's that's too far already. That's too much. I In, in Vietnam, uh, a guy got his, his testicles... Oh, my buddy was shot in the testicles, yeah. Well, he was, okay, here's the thing. Um, Back then, during the war, we would drop pamphlets all over the place from airplanes um, that hopefully Viet Cong soldiers would pick up. And um, it was uh, teaching them a word. I forget what the word is now. But if they said the word, it means they were surrendering and giving themselves up for uh, you know, uh, recuperation. You know, uh, being brought to theirs to our side. 
you know, we 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 dropped those flyers to uh, any Viet Cong that didn't want to be who they were uh, coming on our side. And, you know, I mean, we would detain them, of course, you know. So um, uh, my buddy, uh, Gene Buttons, was out one night and uh, on patrol and uh, uh, this Viet Cong, you know, shot him in, in his testicle. So Gene was trying to shoot him back. Uh, but his M16, like so many of them, jammed. And, uh, uh, and while he's trying to shoot this guy, I guess the guy was out of ammunition or something. He started saying the word, you know, the, the word that means I'm surrendering. But Gene didn't care. He's going to shoot this fucking guy. You know, he shot him in his balls. And um, eventually the, the M16, uh, he, he got it to work and shot the guy. Uh, and it's a good thing because the guy had pulled a pin of a grenade and stuck it in his armpit. Okay. And he, he was coming at Gene with his hands up like this. So when Gene shot him and he went down, the grenade went off and just blew the guy to smithereens. All of this was gone. And I have, I have pictures of that guy, you know, that I took. Uh, in fact, when I was walking to the location, I almost stepped on the guy's arm. It was like 50 yards away, you know, but the grenade went off uh, in his armpit and, you know, did all that damage to him. Uh, Gene wound up, you know, going home, uh, um, Purple Heart, you know, the whole bit. Um, but there were a lot of uh, accidents, uh, our own guys, you know, gun going off. And uh, uh, and I was, you know, I'm there. I'm, I'm there to see it. Now, I wasn't in the front lines. I was in a headquarters company, you know, processing reconnaissance film when the pilots came down. And and then when if something horrible happened, uh, uh, okay, here's a story for you. Uh, I'll try to make it as brief as possible. Uh, um, when you're in Vietnam, you have uh, you're entitled to R and R, rest and recuperation. After six months, you're allowed to go to Australia, um, uh, uh, Thailand, you know, a lot of close places like that. Uh, I went to Hawaii uh, to meet my then wife. Okay, but I waited till my tenth month. I didn't want to go back to Vietnam and have six months left. Okay, so I waited till my tenth month, and when I went back to Vietnam. They put me on the worst duty possible, uh, 30 days of guard duty, which means you're in a bunker with three other guys. Two guys are asleep, two guys are awake, uh, and there's seven bunkers. There's a line of bunkers all made of sandbags, okay? Um, and each bunker is an arsenal of weapons, grenade launcher, M16 machine gun, M16s on your shoulder, Claymore mines, Claymore mines, knock trees over, 5,000 pellets, you know, shoot out of this thing. And sometimes the Viet Cong would turn them around and make themselves visible. So you'd press the button and you would get wiped out. So we painted the back of them with luminous paint. So if we could see the paint, we knew it was facing in the right direction. In front of each bunker is a trip wire. On the in front of it and on each side. So if somebody bumps it, a flare goes off. If somebody cuts it, it's spring-loaded, a flare goes off, okay? Now, um, again, there's seven bunkers. The commanding officer is in the first bunker, you know, and he's got a scope, a night scope, okay. So, but you're not, if you saw, oh, it's you in the bunker and there's the woods right in front of you, the jungle. If they're coming, you're first contact, okay? If they're coming through the woods, you're the first line that they're going to bother, you know, attack. All right, so, but if you see a thousand Viet Cong coming at you, you're not allowed to open fire. You have to call the command bunker. That officer has to come up with a night scope. See, if he sees the thousand people, then he will call battalion and request permission to fire. You're not allowed to just open fire, okay? So 
It's three o'clock in the morning, uh, seventh day of 30 day guard duty. Me and Morales are on duty. And right in front of my bunker, the trip flare goes off. Now, I immediately open fire with the M16 machine gun. Guys upstairs are hitting grenade launchers, pressing the button for the Claymore mines. Uh, Every bunker in the line opens fire in front of my bunker. And it was a duck, okay? A duck had set off the trip flare. So now there's a caravan of headlights coming to me because I opened fire without calling the command officer. A general gets out of the Jeep and, you know, I can't, I'm, I can't talk. And when I finally calmed down, he said, why did you open fire? And I said, my trip flares went off, sir. He said, oh, I guess I would have opened fire too. What was it? I said, it was a duck, sir. <laughs> he said, did you get it? No, it flew away. <laughs> we, covered, we covered every square inch of dirt with something, a bullet, shrapnel, okay? The duck flew away. So they took me off guard duty that night. Uh, and for the rest of my time in Vietnam, they called me the Duck Slayer, okay? But the next night, we were attacked. Guys in those bunkers died. Body bags carried away. We were attacked. I wasn't there. The, to me, the duck saved my life. I have never eaten duck since Vietnam. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's, that... a, that's an ending. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that's a, that is a very strange and frightening story, Tom. Absolutely 100% true, I promise you. Yeah. As, as we run out of time here, can we ask you about some of the, some of the legendary actors that you, that you got to work with? As we got a, li- a short list here, and maybe you'd pick one or two. Okay, sure. Joe, Joe Spinell, John Marley, Fritz Weaver, anybody, John, any John good Mar- story come to mind? Well, maybe uh, Al Holbrook? Uh, well, you know, with, course, well, I wasn't with them on set as an actor. I was simply, you know, doing the fluffy creature, uh, Hal Holbrook, especially for Creepshow. John Marley and I became pals. We would go out to clubs together and they would set up VIP areas. That's the guy, the guy with the horse head in the bed, you know. Jack Waltz. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. So he was, uh, I love that man. He was so, such a smart, intelligent actor. Um, but who else? Uh uh, who George else we got uh, on there? Patrick McNee. Patrick McNee? You, direct, uh, you directed him. No, I no. Didn't uh-uh. you work with Patrick McNee? No. Uh-uh. No. IMDb let us down. Fritz- oh, listen. There's, I, I go to IMDb. There's like nine things on IMDb. I have no idea what the hell they <laughs> How about Fritz Weaver? <laughs> Fritz Weaver, yes. I, I hired and directed Fritz, we- Fritz Weaver in one of my uh, Tales from the Dark Side episodes. But there's also George Clooney. You know, George Clooney, the nicest man you could ever want to be hang out with. Uh, he, uh, he was so inspiring to me. Uh, he treated everybody so nice. And it doesn't take a lot of effort to be nice, you know. Uh, and just he was, he, I just, I can go on and on about George Clooney, how nice that man was, you know. Um, who else we got? Fritz Weaver. Oh, you know what? <clears throat> you mean, I shook hands with the Three Stooges, okay? Oh, wow. Oh, my God. We in, buried the lead. In Pittsburgh. They came to promote the Three Stooges Meet Hercules, I made sure I was on the aisle so when they walked down, I could shake. And they, they looked like businessmen, hair combed back nicely. Their hands were very dry. And they got up on stage and started smacking the piss out of each other. Moe's hair fell down. He became Moe. He pulled out Larry's hair, and Larry became Larry. And there it was, the Three Stooges, okay? Um, I smoked a joint with Timothy Leary. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so good. I'm at, a, I'm at a convention in New York, green room. He's on a couch with this big joint. He took a drag, and then he's he's looking for who to give it to. I leaped across furniture, 
to get there and get that joint from him so I could say that I smoked a joint with Timothy Leary. Well, wow, these are some good brushes some, with greatness. A lot of your listeners don't even know who that is. You know? Well, our listeners will surprise you. Okay. <laughs> they they well, wind up looking it up. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, who else is on the list? Uh, uh, well, let's see. Uh, who else? Uh, Hal Holbrook, uh, uh, Fritz Weaver, John, Joe Spinell. Joe Spinell. Also uh, from The Godfather. Well, part- again, a wonderful man. You know, I, I had to. Well, yes. that And that that's I couldn't wait to meet him because of The Godfather. And if you, you know, we did this movie Maniac together. Oh, sure. yeah, sure. He, you know, and I can't tell you how many meetings we had where I would say to Joe, no, Joe, please, you can't bite that off of a woman. OK, he wanted to do horrible things to women. And, you know, I'm, and I have to create it physically with latex and rubber. I said, no, 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 you can't do that. Now, I'm, I, we, it, I had to cast his head and make him, you know, a fake head. Because his head gets ripped off at the end of the movie. Right. Now, um, I gave him the fake head, and he put it on his television in his living room. Now, when he died, it was like William Holden. He hit his head and bled a lot. He bled to death, you know, on his apartment uh, floor. And he he fell with his feet facing the entrance to the apartment. So, uh, and blood was everywhere. So when the police came in, they saw him lying there. And the head on the television, and they thought he had been decapitated because his fake, you know, his head is in there. <laughs> you just couldn't see his head, you know, from the doorway. You know, the, one of the guys who walked in actually told me this story, you know, with the police. Now, William Holden, he hit his head on the corner uh, of a table. Yeah, yeah coffee uh, table. Uh, 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 one of the end tables near the bed. End you table. Know, night table, yeah. Yeah. And he bled to death as well. But wait, who else on the list? Joe Spinell? Hello. Oh, that's I just, we had. Just because you mentioned Joe Spinell, I just remember that line. Oh, yeah, he had a lot of buffers. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of buffers, Senator. Willie Chi Chi. Who else? Anybody else on the list that might have? A- well, we, I just wrote, I just scrolled down some character actors that you worked okay. with. Ed Harris, of course. Yeah, his Early uh, his on in movie. both his your careers. And what about the older, you met Christopher Lee. Yeah. Any of the older horror actors still alive? When did you work with Carradine ever? No, uh, I did a play with Carradine. I did Inherit the Wind in North Carolina. Wow. John Carradine. He had wonderful stories. Uh, John Carradine. A.G. Marshall from Creepshow. Um, but John Carradine, to me, was like meeting Boris Karloff, you know. Um, if you go to John Carradine's IMDb page, there's something like 400 movies there. I, I can't imagine an actor who oh didn't my who worked more consistently grape, longer. Grapes of Wrath. Grapes of I Wrath. I know, John Carradine. And yeah. never turned anything down, apparently. Bride of Frankenstein, you know. Oh, yes. My I, God, it's the monster. There you go. <laughs> and his voice. He told me that directors would say to him, young man, you are in love with your voice. Could you please stick to the idea of the scene? <laughs> That's good. If I had that voice, I would be in love with my. Oh voice. my God! Yeah. Uh, uh, and you know, I've I've worked with his sons. I've worked with Keith. I've worked with David. Um, and um, and I w- and I told them, of course, that uh, I worked with their father. And they didn't. They, it's like I didn't say anything. You know, I don't know what their relationship was. You know, I I think that was a wacky upbringing having John as a father. Well, it couldn't have been as wacky as Bing Crosby. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, wacky is the word. 
I'm sure you're laughing because you probably know. Oh, sure, my God. He beat the shit out of his kid. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, someone I know asked Buddy Hackett. Uh, he spoke to him about being Crosby. And Buddy Hackett said, Oh, I know why Bing Crosby would beat his kids because Bing Crosby couldn't get a high on. <laughs> that was a very good buddy hacking. <laughs> He's an excellent mimic, Tom. We should, we did should. You see, did you ever see Buddy Hackett and, uh, and, uh, uh who's the guy from the Carol Burnett? Oh, <laughs> Can I tell you something? This is mentioned in just about every episode. Bud and Lou. It's come up on this show <laughs> dozens of times. <laughs> I just bought it. I just bought it on VHS. <laughs> it's horrible. Horrible. It's the, horrible. They look like they've never seen Abbott and Costello. All Buddy Hackett did was, like, talk slow and... You know, the routines, it was just so bad. And I, I mean, who's on first, which is the whole rhythm, is the whole thing with who's on first. And he's going, watch the guy's name on first base. All he did was talk slow. Yeah. <laughs> that is so funny. Why didn't the director, you know... Um, you know, you don't quite have the thing there, you know, buddy. <laughs> I love that Tom Savini brought up Bud and Lou. I, that that <laughs> has popped up in every episode. We, of we've, this done, show. We've, <laughs> we've done about 125 of these, Tom, and that comes up all the time. I've oh. done I've I've done Buddy Hackett's death scene in about like 50 of these shows <laughs> at least. Every but, other show I mean, I'm doing. Have to make it, you've got to make it something that has to happen when you do these. Somehow you've got to bring it up, you know. Okay. Yeah. It's I'll, like Nina with uh, Hirschfeld. Even though I just did this yesterday, when <laughs> Buddy Hackett, <laughs> as Lou Costello is dying, and Artie Johnson, as the manager, brings him a strawberry malted, and he goes, you know, I've had a lot of strawberry malted in my day, but this one's the Best. And then he falls down dead. <laughs> you see, I didn't get that far. <laughs> you don't want to get that far. Stop watching after, I don't know, 10 minutes, maybe 15. Oh, I, they destroy the Abbott and Costello routines. Well, there's two guys that come here in Pittsburgh that should have done that movie. They do they do Bud and Lou, and it's perfect. It's at a convention called the Monster Bash. It's a convention of all old-time horror. Rico Browning, who played the creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah, he's still with uh, us. Kevin wow. McCarthy, when Kevin McCarthy was alive, this was a convention for old-timers. And these two guys were perfect, Joe Ziegler and Bill Riley. They would even walk around dressed uh, in the costumes from, like, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. You know, I, have, I can show you pictures of Frankenstein, the Wolfman, the Mummy, and them, and you would think it's a frame from the movie. It's, that's how good these guys are. Wow. So so watching Bud and Lou. <laughs> it's, 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 I, know the, I know the VHS copy you bought because it's not even available on DVD. No, you have it, to go to this it, third. No, it third, never lasted. Yeah. 
long enough to be a modern technology, I guess. It's know? atrocious. It belongs to that period of films, those that we've talked about on this show, those really bad Hollywood biopics that came out. They did the Rod Steiger as W.C. Fields. And they did the oh, James Brolin. Gable, Gable and Lombard yeah. with James Brolin and Jill Clayburgh. And there's there's a spate of them. So why why did we talk about Bud and Lou? I, I asked you. <laughs> you, you said something. That oh, made me- because it had to do with Bing, Bing Crosby. Crosby's he was doing on. Buddy Hackett to, yeah. to explain okay. Bing Crosby's uh, the kid's childhood. Did you fire a gun when you would when you would uh, speak to crowds? Did you do that? Oh, yeah, because. <laughs> <laughs> a blank gun. I would come out yeah. and fire a blank gun, and it was so loud, you know? And I would say something like, I bet your security will walk in any minute. Security never walked in. But the whole point was, I would take all the bullets out of the gun and put one back in and spin the barrel and point it out at the audience. And they would be, <clears throat> you know. And the lesson was that the best scares come from suspense, you know? Um, show the threat, and then. Make the threat. That, that's why I think World War Z is a terrific movie. A lot of people didn't like it. But that's an example of creating a situation, a horrible situation, and then throwing people in it. Because those scares became uh, suspense scares. I mean, anybody can jump up and go boo. And they do it all the time, even in big movies. And that scare lasts for like a second or two. But the suspense scares, you can draw that out. You know what I mean? Uh, but not too long. Uh, if you're If you're a good director... You know that not to go too long. Uh, like here's a room and uh, there's a door here and there's a door here. You show behind this door is the psycho or the tentacled creature or the bomb. You show the threat. And then you have the girl walk in that door. From the second she walks in, the scare has started. You know, and you can't wait for her to get to that door. In fact, you please go to the door so I can see what's going to happen. And if you're smart, you slow her down. The phone rings. Oh, no. The whole time she's on the phone, you're going crazy. You want her to get to that door, okay? So she hangs up and you feel great. Okay, great. She's going to go to the door. But then, oh, you you slow her down again. Oh, I broke a nail. And now you're getting pissed. You can't wait. Okay, if you're smart, she goes to the door, she opens it, and there's nothing there. And you go, huh. And then the fucking monster jumps out from behind her or the bomb goes off or something. The best way to scare people is to uh, put them at ease, make them laugh. And then, boom, you've got them, you know. And the, but there's a time limit. you got to be – it's all about timing. Well, yeah. you asked about my childhood, so just real quickly. Okay. Yeah. I used to dress up as – I think I'm, again, 14. I used to dress up as Zorro. I was madly in love with Zorro, the <laughs> TV series. I hadn't even seen Tyrone Power. Guy Williams TV series? Guy Williams. Guy oh. Williams. This was a Disney show. A guy mm. wearing a cape and riding a horse with a sword. That's me. I want to do that. I, I, you know, if I were, if I could come back, I, you know, I'd come to those times, you know. So, but so it was, it was Zorro. I was crazy about. So I would dress up as Zorro and wait at night and wait for a car to come by on my street, and I would jump in front of the car in his headlights and <laughs> run away. Oh, run away. And then run away. And I knew that that guy is going. Was that Zorro? <laughs> 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 that, was, that was a thrill to me. And not just, not on Halloween, I'm talking, you know, July. <laughs> I love that. We've learned so much about you, Tom. <laughs> did you ever, you never jumped in front of a car in costume, did you, Gil? <laughs> <laughs> just so I could be in the spotlight as Great you know, stuff. Make, carve the Z in the air and then run, you know. And, and I want to tell you, next time I'm booked in Pittsburgh, I'm definitely giving oh, yeah. you a call. Come see the monsters. Oh, yeah, you got to go. 
And so this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre and the master of horror makeup, Tom Savini. Tom, you were the perfect Halloween guest. Thank you. Thank you. We uh, thank you. We thank this you. This time I'm going to celebrate it. I'm usually not home, you know, but I'll be home this time. Putting on the Zorro costume? Santo Padre. You're the guy I keep seeing on Facebook. That's me. Roy okay. Fremke's old friend. Who? Roy Fremke's. Oh, really? I studied with him at SVA. Yeah. Document of the dead. You bet. You bet. Been hearing your name a long time. Good. Glad to hear. Thanks for doing this for us, man. My pleasure. Thank you, Tom. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye.